Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Please keep in mind that this podcast is for medical education only and not for diagnosing that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who think that reviewing for the clinic, boards, and OCAPs are better when you don't have to do it alone. Each episode, we review a high-yield topic and discuss the why and the how. Today, after briefly celebrating the end of OCAP season, we're going to talk about macular dystrophies. A side note, we did it. Everyone who is a U.S. resident who took OCAPs, yay, we're done. And we were just talking, OCAP really doesn't have an S, does it? Yeah, this entire time I've been writing an S in OCAPs, I, I was always wondered what do the S stand for? It turns out nothing. We're actually celebrating by making this episode. I mean, I celebrated watching you try to make a bowl of popcorn. That didn't go so good. Okay, we won't talk about that for fellowship application <laughs> purposes. So what are we going to talk about today, Andrew? We are doing the macular dystrophies, starting with five that will characterize as affecting the central retina or the central RPE dystrophies. Then, after that, we'll talk about two conditions that affect the layer of the choroid. Okay, so the first one is not the worst macular dystrophy. Oh my lead, God. Casual, casual lead in. It's the best! <laughs> I, okay. I saw red on that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one we're going to cover is best vitelliform macular dystrophy. Some people just call it best dystrophy or best vitelliform dystrophy too. Okay, so the classic fundus <laughs> appearance is that of something that looks like an egg yolk on the fovea. To better understand best macular dystrophy, we should probably start with the pathology behind what causes best macular dystrophy. It's caused by a mutation in the best one gene on chromosome 11, and that gene makes it best trophin. So the word best is in like all of these components. Bestrophin is known as the chloride pump on the basolateral aspect of the RPE. What the, the mutation in that causes is the buildup of yellow subretinal fluid that develops at the fovea. Uh, it's not yet fully understood how a mutation in the basal part of the RP and a chloride pump in the basal part of the RP causes a subretinal fluid development, but it's likely due to disruption in the function in the barrier of the RPE. Uh, another classic pathologic finding is a sub-RP pillar right at the fovea. So you get this really kind of dramatic looking pillar at the fovea um, that doesn't break through Bruch's membrane, but is it, sticking up through there. So despite how it looks so dramatic at initial uh, exam, the vision is actually surprisingly good until that egg yolk kind of breaks, as in until that lesion flattens, then the patient either develops choroidal neovascularization or geographic atrophy. And because of that, this is suggestive that all that vitelliform yellow subretinal fluid actually has some nourishing property to it that it can actually supply photoreceptors to some degree. So that brings us to how BEST tends to progress. So uh, many vitelliform lesions develop a, quote, pseudohypopion appearance. What that means is that yellow material eventually gravitates to the inferior part of the subretinal space. Um, so basically the egg yolk sinks and you can kind of think of the, the white part of the egg yolk rising in that space, giving an appearance of a hypopion at the macula. 
Another way that these can progress is it can appear more like a scrambled egg lesion with RP atrophy and fibrosis. So you'll see the ye yellow lesion still, but there will be areas of RP atrophy fibrosis making it look kind of more scrambled and less a single dome of yellow lesion. In any case, almost all of these egg yolk lesions eventually flatten, as Andrew said, into geographic atrophy. And it's at this point that patients will lose vision compared to the surprisingly good vision they started with. Also, at any point, but especially later in the disease process, choroidal neovascularization can occur because this is fundamentally a problem with the RPE. So as soon as you dilate a patient with this and take a look, it'll become quite evident. But before you get to the dilated part, just if you note on their prescription, their refraction, they can have hyperopia. This mound of an egg yolk thing can actually project so far out forward that it can shorten what you would might get on like an A scan as an axial length. And remember, one millimeter of axial length change leads to about a three diopter shift in your refractive change. Alternatively, for diagnostic purposes, an electrooculogram is the thing to look for in best, dis in best dystrophy, as opposed to an electroretinogram. The electroretinogram is always going to be normal, but the electrooculogram, which again is what measures RPE. Okay, and that's best in a nutshell, an eggshell? That's best dystrophy in an eggshell? Let's move on to star guards. <laughs> Are yeah, you going to yeah, keep yeah. all my size? And what? Like... I tend to. <laughs> okay. Ben, do you know your ABCs? Well, yeah, what, what about them? Good job. You get a star. Gart. The next dystrophy we'll talk about is star guards macular dystrophy. So it's probably best to start with the pathology again for this disease because it helps to inform all of the manifestations of it. So Stargardt's is caused by a mutation in the ABCA4 gene. Uh, it's inherited autosomal recessively. You can maybe help remember autosomal recessive because AR is it twi uh, occurs twice in the word Stargardt, A-R-A-R, that helps you remember. So what ABCA4, the protein made by the gene that's defective in Stargardt's, normally does is helps to clear the retinoids that accumulate in the outer segments of the photoreceptors during the normal light phototransduction cycle. As when ABCA4 doesn't work as well, those retinoids aren't cleared, and eventually it, they accumulate and form the product known as A2E, which is toxic to RP and photoreceptors. Another term used described as lipofusion, which to remind you is not a specific molecule, but basically it's like molecular trash. Is that the right way to call it? Is that offensive to anyone? Um, so it, it, you know, it's basically under that class of wear and tear pigments, i.e. lipofusion. So what you'll find on exam are classically what are called pisciform flecks. And Pisces again is the fish god. So these look like that because these flecks tend to meet at angles, giving them an appearance of a fishtail. And on a fluorescein angiography, it's got this other quite dramatic appearance where the choroid just doesn't light up at all, uh, but the retinal vessels do. So the retinal vessels appear uh, brilliantly across this dark choroid backdrop, which always makes me think of some kind of science fiction disaster. Did you say again... 
Pisces is the god of fish, as if we have referred to that before the podcast. <laughs> and the dark choroid can, if you go back to the pathology, is explained by that accumulation of A2E. So is all that lipofusion actually blocking the transmission of light from the choroid? Yeah, and that's the so that connects that dark choroid appearance to the pathology of Stargardt's. And another thing that connects that is that people with Stargardt's can have a, quote, vermilion-appearing retina. What that means is that normally, you know, when you're looking at a macula, you can't see the choroidal features well, but you can usually make out some choroidal vessels, especially as you go more peripherally. In a patient with Stargardt's, you won't see any choroidal details. It'll just kind of look like a, a, a flat background with the retinal vessels overlying it, which is essentially equivalent to the finding of dark choroid, but in our... Florentine geography, that appearance is more emphasized, is more obvious. And this, again, can also eventually turn into geographic atrophy, including right under those little fishy flecks themselves. And also, this disease has a widely variable presentation. So, piscorn flakes are um, identified... Damn it. So... (laughs) So pisiform flex identifies Stargardt's disease, but a patient does not have to have pisiform flex to have Stargardt's disease. Another example of how their presentation is widely variable is that the presentation of the disease can vary from ages 5 to 50. So there's a kind of a wide variation in when patients can present with this problem. What's the treatment for Stargardt's? Okay, you want to avoid sunlight because that can accelerate the conversion of your retinoids to A2E. Also, BCSC mentions that vitamin A can do the same thing. Um, so avoid both the sun and vitamin A. The uh, avoidance of light is so strongly felt by some authors, including in Ryan's retina, that they actually recommend not doing a fluorescein angiogram on these patients because they don't want to expose them to so much blue light. Um, I don't know if that's an opinion shared by the retina community as a whole, but that's something to keep in mind and hopefully help you remember that perhaps the only thing that we think can delay the progression of Stargardt's is possibly avoiding excessive sun exposure. So wearing hats, sunglasses is recommended for these patients. Ben, what do these little fishy flecks look like on fundus autofluorescence? They are hyper autofluorescent, which makes sense because lipofusion, we know autofluoresces and in general junk autofluoresces. So this is just an accumulation of junk in the RPE. <laughs> We're going to just uh, continue slogging our way through these into the... Uh, We're having fun. I mean, We're you're having fun swimming our way through these destroyed and tortured photoreceptor oh remnants. Okay, the next... This, the next thing is a series of dystrophies that we're going to kind of lump together to talk about them together, and they are called the pattern dystrophies. The thing that co- connects all of these seemingly disparate dystrophies together is they seem to all be caused by the PRPH2 gene, otherwise known as the RDS gene. They are There are four that are identified by BCSC, so those are the ones that we're going to talk about. There's adult vitelliform butterfly type, reticular pattern, and fundus pulverulentus. That's like it's just yeah, I fun... want to try it. Fundus okay. 
Pulverlentus. Nope, I didn't Pulver- do it. Did not do any better. Fun pulver. All apologies to Doctor Pulverlentus. <laughs> That's not a. So, so, a- um, so adult vitelliform appears like best disease, except it usually starts later. So ages forty or on, unlike best disease, which should start um when the patient's a child. Though uh, we didn't mention with best disease that. They can present later in time if they have kind of a less severe form of best where their lesions are smaller. But the, in theory, best disease starts when, when they're a child. Butterfly type has a butterfly appearance. Reticular pattern looks reticular. And fundus pulver, pulverulentus has uh, this coarse pigment modeling within it. In any case, these patients tend to have only mild vision loss or metamorphopsias due to the pigment deposition at the level of the RPE. And they typically have a low chance of ever developing CNV. Though it's always possible because their RPE is disrupted, they tend to not get CNV. But they may eventually develop geographic atrophy. The important thing to know about pattern dystrophy is that this is on your differential whenever you're seeing anyone with what you think is macular degeneration. You should think about maybe this is a pattern dystrophy instead. Uh, So the fourth macular dystrophy we're going to hit is Soresby dystrophy, which is caused by an alteration of the TIMP3 gene or the tissue inhibitor of metalloproteinases 3. As usual, matrix metalloproteinases are the bugaboo here, where they're going and chewing away at the extracellular matrix in Bruch's layer. And TIMP3 is a gene that codes for an inhibitor of these matrix metalloproteinases. Now, the the genetic mutation in Sorsby's dystrophy is that where TIMP3 stops working as well, and therefore it lets the matrix metalloproteinases run wild, potentially chewing through the extracellular matrix a little too much. Um, so TIMP3, the tissue inhibitor of metalloproteinases, uh, then instead of regulating the matrix metalloproteinases, instead builds up, and it can appear, lead to the appearance of early drusen in these patients. In the classic age that these patients start to have symptoms or um, vision loss is around age 40. Eventually, this leads to geographic atrophy, which leads to the vision loss. And classically, they have clumps of black pigment around the central ischemic zone where the temp- where the disease is most active, which gives it a, quote, pseudo-inflammatory appearance. That's one of the buzzwords that goes with Sorsby's dystrophy. And eventually, if this disease is not treated, that geographic atrophy where there's loss due to the TIMP3 buildup and dysfunction spreads peripherally and can affect the peripheral retina as well eventually. One thing that helps me remember what this disease is, is I think of this as a very, you know, it's a very active and um, damaging disease. So I think of it as imp 3 like there's like an evil imp causing this damage, the pseudo-inflammatory appearance. So yeah, that's Sorsby's dystrophy. It tends to give you early Jerusalem and geographic attribute age 40 with a pseudo-inflammatory appearance due to an abnormality in the gene TIMP3. Okay. And then the last dystrophy that we'll talk about affecting the RPE or retina in the macula is autosomal dominant radial drusen. This is, on clinical appearance, often what you expect to find for someone with maybe the dry macular degeneration, where you see all this drusen everywhere. And that can actually show up in your younger patients as well and stay with them throughout life. The gene for this is EFEMP1. It codes for something called fibulin 3. 
There's two classic phenotypes for this called Doin's honeycomb and Malatia leventinis. There are two phenotypes of the same condition, and they both have relatively dramatic appearances. So essentially it looks like drusen, a lot of drusen affecting the macula in young patients. Except these don't. These ones don't stay in the macula. They can radiate outwards as well. That covers the macular dystrophies that affect the retina and RPE. And the next few that we're going to talk about can also affect the retina and RPE, but they're considered choroidal dystrophies. And they're often thought about together because they have a, a pretty similar appearance. And those are... North Carolina macular dystrophy and central areolar choroidal dystrophy. So they have a pretty similar appearance. Basically, they look like really sharply demarcated geographic atrophy at the fovea. And they're both autosomal dominant. So one of the main differences is, is age of onset. North Carolina macular dystrophy starts in infancy and may present when the patient is much younger, classically when the patient's around 20, but it can present even younger than that, where a central areolar choroidal dystrophy happens later in later adulthood. Uh, the other difference is that North Carolina macular dystrophy has these clusters of peculiar yellow-white lesions that occur at the level of the RPE, and eventually these lesions get bigger and uh, can make a ring or can develop within the area of atrophy and look even staphylomatous or excavated. So they have these yellow or white lesions that occur. And that's in contrast to central areolar or choroidal dystrophy, where it's just all it is is a sharply demarcated area of geographic atrophy. In both cases, CNV is pretty rare. And then some tech, um, some literature, CACD, central areolar choroidal dystrophy, is associated with the PRPH2 gene, which we mentioned with the pattern dystrophies as well. So that's our run-through of the macular dystrophies. In general, these are dystrophies that should be on your differential when you see a patient that you presume has macular degeneration. And just in case you're wondering about how these all fit into the general constellation of retinal dystrophies, we haven't mentioned those other items in chapter 12 of the Retina BCSC book. We will eventually. One day. Oh, One God. day. <laughs> and that's all we have for this week. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with a number four. And our website's up and running at Eyes4Ears.net with the word for, because we need a marketing team. Um, if you thought we were helpful for your OCAP review, or if you want to support the podcast, it really helps us to like and give, leave us a review on iTunes. To all those of you stalwarts who are still listening even the week after OCAPs, we salute you, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye! <laughs> <laughs>